back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the producers, the writers, directors, actors, costume designers, production designers, cinematographers, uh, composers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, you name it, we talk to them. And boy, oh boy, am I excited about today's show because we've got, at the midpoint of the show, we've got Ryan Lason, writer-director, with us to talk about his feature directorial debut, which just had its world premiere at the New York Latino Film Fest, uh, uh, oh God, what was it, a week ago, uh, called All the World is Sleeping. It's a drama. It deals with generational addiction. It's a narrative film. Very well acted. I'm very happy that Ryan is going to be joining us the midpoint. But before Ryan, and this man is already on the line. He is one of my bucket list interviews I have waited a long time for. I'm so excited to welcome Simon Phillips to Behind the Lens. Welcome, Simon. Hello, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Oh, my God. As I just said, I told my engineer and I just said on air, you know, you are one of my bucket list people that I have. Oh, wow. I have so admired your work for so long. And you have always been on on the list of people I wanted to talk to. Uh, Uh, Well, today's the day we make it all happen. We make it all happen today because you are prolific. You have given me one of my favorite Santa Clauses ever. Uh, oh. Tells you how twisted I am. Uh, there you go. <laughs> but you just keep working and working and working. And then, as all of my regular listeners and readers know, I went absolutely berserk about stealing Chaplin when Paul Tatner was on the show talking about the film. Um, it, it's one of my favorite comedies of the year. I kid you not. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it, it was good fun to make. I, I think we had a tremendous time making it. So, yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. So we're going to get into that one too. And then you've got another film out now. This is a good year for you. Um, this now, has been a very good year. Um, oh my God! What now? You know, and this one is you're in a Bruce Willis film. You're in the new Bruce right. Willis movie, Survive the Game. But as, as I told you before we went on the air, the reason to see this film is you and former General Hospital heartthrob Sean Kanan. The two of you <laughs> are the reason to see this film. This is an action, thri- very... action thriller, and you guys had me laughing my ass off. See, we ba- managed to bring the comic relief. Well, and... Uh, I hate to say it, but yeah, the film needed a little bit of comic relief. Um, as well, we were happy to provide. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's you know, I know I know the director of Survive the Game, James Cullen Bressack. I'm very familiar with his work. I've spoken with James several times in the past, um, and I mean, the script. It's an interesting script. It's it, you've got Willis playing a cop, of course. Uh, he's, he's partnered with, I mean, look at how many of these small little indies he's been doing the past few years. How often is he a cop? 
quite a few times. Yeah. Or a retired a or a retired sheriff or a retired detective. So it's it's John McClane three point oh. Um, exactly. But he's that's what, Debbie, that's what the people want. It is. It is. And this is something that I find so interesting about your work, Simon, is when you pick projects, it's kind of like you have an instinct as to what the people want for what you do. Um, I mean, that's that's very gifted when you can do that. That's very kind. I don't know if it's very true. I think it's just me having uh, not remembering that not we shouldn't take it all too seriously. Well, anybody that would play Santa Claus in, you know, Once Upon a Time at Christmas and the Nights Before Christmas, um, and then and jump into something like Butchers, uh, and then jump into something like Stealing Chaplin, you don't take things seriously, and that's what makes your choices and your work so engaging and entertaining, Simon. Well, that's. Um, I always try and add a bit of uh, humor into everything I do, which is like, even if I'm playing a bad guy or a serial killer or something like that, I've often found that dark humor is a way into pe- people liking you, even if you're doing despicable things. Well, you know, take Survive the Game, for example. You're part of this gang um, that really the bosses, the the boss, the bosses of the of these this drug dealing gang are actually pretty comical when you look at them. You look at you look at the boss Frank, the low boss. Then you have the big boss, uh, Michael, and he reminds me of somebody who really he's trying to, to wear his dad's old suit and it doesn't fit. Uh, and you and you got Frank who has seen too many episodes of The Sopranos. Yeah. And then you bring in actors like Donna Derrico as one of the the heavies and. Uh, Kate Katzman as a wannabe Harley Quinn as Violet, and and Zach Ward as as Violet's idiot boyfriend Mickey, and it's like the blind leading the blind. But yet, oh, I love I like I like Zach Ward. I think he's great. Oh my God, he's hilarious. He is yeah. hilarious. Every gang has to have somebody who plays like the dumb guy. Yes. And and that that's what Zach does. But then we get the the two guys that really don't seem like they belong are, you know, is your character of English and Sean's character of Ed. The two of you just don't seem like you belong with these other people. And you're more or less put together by Frank. It's always... English and Ed, you go do something. You go do this. You you go <laughs> yeah. you, you go sit and watch. Of course, you did. You, you got the sedentary job. You, the two of you were assigned to just sit in the house and guard Bruce Willis's character of David, tie him up. And, <laughs> and, didn't, and we didn't do that too well, did we? Oh, that's the funniest scene in the entire film, Simon. Where, you know, obviously you've got a cop who's trying to untie his knots and get out of the knots. And you're there with a gun. Ed has been sent out to move a car and he crashes into the garage door and he can't really drive the car well. Um, it's, It's just a comedy of errors. But then all of a sudden, you know, you English realizes, oh, my God, the cop is loose. 
And you start. <laughs> it is cold sweat. Your hands are shaking, holding the gun. And Willis is Willis is there going. Do you want to sit down? You look like you need to sit down. You want to sit down? <laughs> I think I need to sit down. I think I need to sit down. But uh, uh, well, here's a chair. Sit down. Okay, I'm gonna sit here. But I, I, I'm gonna squat, so I'm ready. I'm ready to pounce if you try and move. I. Was, oh, you 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 have seen the movie, Debbie. I I watched it twice, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I was rolling, rolling. That just that that just was so much fun. Watching well, it. I said to James, James before we did the movie, I was like, feels like there's a lot of tough guys in the movie. Like, there's a lot of tough guys in this script. About, how about I'm like a guy that isn't really sure that he wants to be a gangster. Like Maybe he wanted to go to culinary school or something like that. And he, You know what? He just hasn't thought it all through. And <laughs> <laughs> I, gave, I gave myself a completely different backstory. I like your backstory. I like that backstory. That's good. And then me and, uh, thankfully, me and the wonderful Sean Kanan, who I, I never knew before the movie, by the way, uh, we just got on really well. And we we're like, oh, we're going to try this, like, bickering thing, like we're Bert and Ernie or, like, some sort of husband and husband team where we just bitch at each other for the whole movie. And it, it works. It's so good. And that's, that is something that a lot, and you always get that with the buddy cop movies. You get that. You get that in Lethal Weapon. Um, yeah. you even get that from Bruce Willis in the third, uh, in the third Die Hard movie with he and Samuel Jackson and That's they're right. bickering yeah. back and forth. That adds a whole other dynamic. And I think it, it makes, it brings the audience in even more because it seems like somebody in their best friend or somebody in their frenemy, um, would be behaving the same way and you can relate to it more. Uh, and sometimes you just need something to diffuse the tension that's building. I mean, how many times can you watch the car go around the circular driveway? Um, you get, well, there's no, <laughs> as, as Alfred Hitchcock was saying, there's no tension in the bank. So you have to, the comedy relief is often very important. Very much so. You know, what when you saw, first saw this script and you read this script, what did you think of the script? Ross Peacock wrote the script. Um, what attracted you to this project? Well, I didn't know anybody on the project, but I knew uh, a producer, Lee Broder, and she hooked me up with it and said, look, there's something with Bruce Willis. And I was like, ooh, tell me more. And I was like, you know, sort of, and she was like, well, the, and the role was called, my role was called Cowboy, and he was a cowboy in it, and uh she was like, look, speak to the director, James. He's a very nice guy, very talented guy. Uh, you know, he's the director. Speak to him. And I was speaking to James, and halfway through the call, he was like, right, no. I'm going to get rid of Cowboy. And I was like, ah, oh, damn. You know, I, I really needed this. And uh, he was like, no, no, I'm going to rewrite Cowboy to be called English. And he goes, you're going to be English. You're going to be like a Vinnie Jones. He goes, just want you to be just like you were talking to me just now. He goes, we're going to put that on screen, and I'll have you arguing with Sean Kanan, who's Ed, you know. And he goes, and he'll be like, you know, he'll be very, I'll make him the sort of redneck, very pro-America, and you'll be the British guy who's like very anti-America and very pro-British. And 
He goes, I can see it straight away. He's like, yeah, just just do that. So he rewrote the whole character for me, which I was really oh. grateful for because I was gonna I was gonna have to pretend to be a cowboy, which was not gonna be nearly as much fun. No. Um, so I'm very glad that he did it. No, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Well, and I, you know, and Sean Cannon giving him that, uh, you know, down the costume, you know, very militia, redneck militia like with a mohawk. Um, mohawk, yeah. yeah. <laughs> his, you know, people. His, he was such a fan favorite on General Hospital. People still lament his death on the show a, a few years ago, and the, yeah. the, the chat board still they love him. Anything he works on, it's like, oh my god, it's AJ Quartermain. Oh my god, uh, because they they forget that he has a real name and not just a character's name. But th- <laughs> this is something we've never seen from him before. So this pairing with oh, you. Sure. Sean was wonderful. Like, uh, I mean, he's a pro, obviously, anyway, sort of so. But, I mean, to have him as my sort of scene partner, because really my scenes were with Sean a lot of the yes. time. So uh, it was a dream control. I'd never met him, but he was like the exact actor I want to be across from. So he was confident. He was giving. He would improvise the whole nine yards. He would, and he was true, like truly, and my guy knew what he was doing. So it was great. You're in very safe hands. Well, and you shot, if I'm correct, you shot this in Puerto Rico? Yes. You got a trip to Puerto Rico out of it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Oh, I would have, that would have been reason enough to go just to get the free trip to Puerto Rico. I, actually, that's, that's how I got the movie. So the, uh, the producer that I mentioned to you at the beginning of this story, Debbie, was a producer on a Mel Gibson movie that shot in Puerto Rico. And yes. I was in this Mel Gibson movie. Uh, before it and then it was because of the knowledge she goes actually you know there's another movie coming to Puerto Rico with Bruce Willis uh, and I was like oh go on tell me and so I'd got it because I'd already been in Puerto Rico and already shot a, a movie in Puerto Rico before that so uh, that's how I got into the whole game wow now I'm curious did you guys shoot this during COVID or did you shoot this before the lockdowns everywhere oh wait, this one got shot in February this year that quickly? That's right. These guys are good, right? Wow, what a turnaround. So, yeah, oh, my God, that, that's blowing my mind. February, and it's already coming out. Wow. Yeah, they did good on this one. <laughs> wow. You know, how, because here you were on this, it appears to be an isolated area in Puerto Rico, an isolated farm. Um, you know, what were... How were the the protocols, the COVID protocols, for shooting oh, this? Oh, they were they were like a pain in the ass. To be honest, <laughs> they were. It's every day getting COVID tests and every day getting swabbed, and you got to wear the masks and the whole thing. It, it's difficult to make a movie with all the stuff because, and, and eventually, it always feels silly to me because even with all the masks and stuff and the separation and the distancing that they do. Eventually, I have to stand, like, you know, one foot away from Bruce Willis. Yeah. With no mask on. And, of course, that's everybody's biggest concern is they don't want Bruce to get sick. Forget about everybody else. You you know? Oh, yeah. Believe me, Debbie. I I got two COVID tests a day to make sure that didn't happen. Wow. Wow. Now, you know, because... I was... They could avoid most people, but they couldn't avoid me. I was right next to the guy. Yes, you were. I definitely had to do it. You know, you were you were just a chair's length away from him. Yeah, um, and that that's putting it mildly. 
Wow. <laughs> we got we got we got a bit closer than that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. That's that's incredible. That's something. You know, I'm I'm curious, Simon. You know, let me jump. I want to jump to stealing Chaplin. Um, sure. Because I I just love that film so much. Um, and it is absurdly dark and funny, and you have so much charm in that film. But you and Doug, you came up with the story. You and Doug wrote it, or you came uh, up no, with the Doug story. No, Doug wrote Doug wrote the story, but he wrote it with me in mind, so uh, as, that as, probably helped him as well. He should, you know what? Now something like stealing Chaplin, that actually has a progeny in history. When so, so, oh yeah, uh, that... it was a, a real event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, not in Las Vegas and not no. one day. It was in Switzerland and it was in the seventies. But two people really did steal Charlie Chaplin's body and really did try to ransom it to the family. Yeah, I mean, I remember when it happened in the in the seventies, and it yeah. was it was a huge sensation. The National Enquirer loved it, um, but <laughs> yeah, but even yeah. mainstream media. Uh, but you know that 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 story, you know, where do you get the inspiration? Because you write enough stuff yourself, you produce. Um, where do you the inspiration for something like that? Obviously, you or Doug, somebody remembered that that bit of trivia in history. Actually, somebody told me the story, Debbie. So they said, "Hey, this happened to Charlie Chaplin," and I was like. I actually didn't believe them that this is a real story. And I went and looked it up. And I well, I spoke to Paul Tanter, the director, and I was like, hey, man, we got to do something with this story. This is mad. Like, And I feel like not enough people know about it. And anybody I spoke to that was sort of was alive and sort of conscious at the time, like they weren't three years old or something, um, remembers it. But I was like, man, but it has been sort of sidelined a lot. I feel like it, it deserved a bit more follow-up, you know, like this mad story. Um and it sounded almost ridiculous, like the plot of a Charlie Chaplin movie. So it just, it, the whole thing sounded uh, ridiculous to me. So I, I, thought, I sat and I had lunch with Paul and we discussed over how we would do it, you know. So, so the fact that we wouldn't do a, a period drama, but we used it as, obviously it's not a, it's just inspired by like this event mm-hmm. that happened, but obviously we've added our own flavor to it. We've added our own uh, comedy to it. But I just wanted to... I just wanted people to think, and I was like, no, this is ridiculous. And you're like, oh, it's not that ridiculous. It did actually happen. No, it is. It... The and then Doug wrote a very, uh, very, you know, witty script, you know, to, to come along with that idea. So, Oh, the humor. The humor is great. And, <laughs> and there's also this great bit of whimsy to it. It's not often when a lot of comedies you can say they have whimsy, but there's so many whimsical things in this film. And, I mean, you've got cops, the mob, drug dealers, strippers, dirty cops, an idiot, a pesky landlord. Uh, you're doing cemetery vigils, uh, vigils, and it is just... And then you get Wayne Newton. What is this? You get Wayne Newton, oh. Mr. Las Vegas. You get, you're get you in a film with Bruce Willis. Okay, what is, what is the magic fairy dust that's around you right now, Simon? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I've got a bottle. I've had a very well. Lots of people have had a very tough year. I have to appreciate because <laughs> of COVID and all that. I was like, oh, I've had a great year. <laughs> you have, but it. I mean, what? And you get to interact, you know, with Newton. Um, you know, you had a oh, great, yeah. a great cast. Al Sapienza, who is one of my favorite, quote unquote, heavies for all the films that yeah. he does. Um, 
just wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, but this is, you're getting to work and not just be in a film with them, but you're doing one-on-one scenes with these people. What do you know? What what is that like for you um, as an actor? Oh, it's it's great, Debbie. I mean, uh, you know, when you surround yourself with like these talented giants like Al Sapienza, who are really like not enough people know Al Sapienza's name, but obviously if you look at his CV, he's been everywhere. Um, the, even the Wayne Newtons, the Bruce Willis's of the world, obviously, you know, they get there a bit more name recognition with them. But when you're standing next to them and you're doing scenes with them, I mean, all you're really hoping is that. Some of, some of their magic fairy dust somehow rubs off of on onto them onto you, you know, because you're in the scene with them, uh, you know. And it's just great to spend a bit of time with like like these these are like heroes of mine, and it's just great to spend a bit of time and not just spend a bit of time with them, but it gets encapsulated in a movie. It's like a time capsule. It's great because it lives forever. Yeah, and and I love seeing you play number one a variety of characters, but playing opposite. All of these quote unquote these legends, be they character actors, be be they you know big stars, um, because you're really coming up behind them. You're you're, and with every bit of exposure, you know you're you're stepping into their shoes and you're picking up the mantle. As far as I'm concerned, which you... oh well, that's very kind. I don't see myself, in all honesty, as a leading man. I, I'm, I'm much more happier in a uh, a character actor position you know sort of somebody left of the middle not the main guy but the main maybe the bad guy but so or something you know those are all those characters are slightly more colorful slightly more fun to play mm-hmm. you know how do you go from agreeing to be santa claus uh, <laughs> into some of these other very interesting comedic roles because santa claus you're santa claus in the nights before christmas uh once upon a time at christmas um, is a little bit dark, just a little, just just, just a little. Just a touch. You know, how, you know, what is the appeal of doing something like that and then jumping into something more comedic, like a Stealing Chaplain, or even Butchers? But okay, Butchers is kind of dark. Uh, but Butchers is kind of dark. Yeah, a different director again. But uh, I still managed to get a little bit of comedy into Butchers, even though it's very dark. You know, I was one of these voyeuristic, uh, you know, I enjoyed my work. And that was, you know, if you get that in there, people sort of respond to it. I don't know why, but <laughs> I think that they do. Oh, it's because everybody wishes they were you. The, uh, that is, you know, I have to, you have to remember, I play dress-up for a living, so I can never complain about life. I was See? like, well, I don't, you know, come on, Simon. <laughs> you don't really have a, a real job. This is all just, oh. <laughs> it's all just fantasy stuff. But how fun is, you know, what is the gift that all this fantasy gives you? What keeps I mean, you it's going? just immense job satisfaction. Like, I have the things of, like, I'm very lucky to have worked with the people I have and, you know, spent some, just spent some time with these guys. You know, having, I've had, you know, dinner with Wayne Newton and, you know, like, I've, it's just stuff like that is sort of bucket list stuff and it'll never happen again and it will uh, and that's fine it's uh, but i have a little piece of history like that's just mine and that's uh, i get immense job and life satisfaction out of just that well and and of course you got to be on a film where wayne newton let everybody come and dig up his backyard too oh my god yeah that was uh, good good fun uh yeah he he was the, he, the nicest guy in show business 
Wayne the Dream. He, he truly is. He truly is. Yeah. That was a really great surprise when I watched Stealing Chaplin and uh, third act gets here and, oh, my God, it's Mr. Las Vegas just sitting <laughs> in a bar. Um, you know, I'm really curious about the, the comedy that you infuse in these films. Um, something like Stealing Chaplin, I know from Paul that – you know, he had said that, you know, some of the antics, like on the street scenes, dressed up as as priests. Um, yes. You, you know, you improvised a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, how how important is that to you uh, with a character when you get to do some improv or do you like sticking to the script? Well, with the case of Stealing Javelin, Doug wrote a very wonderful script, so we were very lucky to begin with. Um, but even if he hadn't, uh, as he had, I do enjoy the process of improvising because it forces the other person in the scene to listen. And that's me as well. So whenever the person's saying, if I don't know what they're saying, I have to really listen. And then I have to react, obviously, in character and appropriate to the story. But it, you have to, it makes you think. So, you know, sometimes you see these movies... And somebody looks like they're bored because they're just listening, but, but because they're probably waiting for their line, they go, "Wait, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna make any any facial movement and or any sort of expression." And now I will because it's my line, you know. And that's I always find that very very boring. It's like it loses its uh, live quality, its sort of energy a little bit if you're repeating mm-hmm. things a lot. Yeah, oh, so, I, I, for me, it's it's critical. Oh, I completely agree. Uh, but, you know, after 35 years as a film critic, everybody says. Well, you know, can you send us questions? I don't write questions. And they're like, what? I said, I've never written a question for an interview, ever. Don't do it. Because I have, I I listen, you have to listen. It forces me to listen, and you go with the flow. Um, Well, lots of people are afraid of that. Very much so. Very much so. And I don't know why. Well, no, in some cases... I don't know why, because to me, it's like all of this stuff with film and theater and art and all of that. It's like, it's all, even when a script was written down, it was just somebody trying to capture the flow and capture the energy. And the mistake is to forget that that was the intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah. You're, abs- you're absolutely right. Now, do you have a preference uh, in, with so many, so many different platforms now? Um, you know, we've got VOD, we've got digital, the world has, has gone VOD and digital crazy after all the theaters were shut down for more than a year. But you've got uh, that, you've got uh, the stage, which is now finally, Broadway has finally reopened. Other stages, uh, the West End, uh, other places are opening up as well. Do you have a preference, big screen, small screen, theater, I mean, my first love, I'm British and I was trained in London. So my first love is always theatre uh, because it's, there's such an immediacy of feedback. Like the audience is right there. You get to, every performance is different, uh, even though it's the same show. And there's, a, there's an immense, immediate job satisfaction out there. With a movie, you have to wait a long time, mm-hmm. you know, sort of, uh, and stuff like that. And there's, there's all these, it's, it's all very digital now and it's all very, 
put out in very exciting ways uh, that I couldn't tell you. Uh, but <laughs> it, it's uh, you have to wait for the feedback sort of later on. It's like it's wonderful talking to people that have seen the movie and that like it, and you know it's wonderful talking to people that don't like it as well because you're like, hey, you know, sometimes we try something, sometimes it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, Sometimes we do, and it does, and those are the great moments. Now, do you find that your theater training and, and being on stage, does that help you with finding those comedy beats, even in the darkest moments? Yeah, I think it's important to make choices like that that are just... Um, Give it, give a character some color is always the way I sort of say it. It's like it gives it a bit of depth and a bit of... Uh, something like that, because even if you're doing something very, very serious or very, you know, depraved, uh, I think I, I always try and find, put a bit of me into the character. And me is, I always find life kind of funny. I'm not a very serious person. So whenever I'm doing very serious things, I always try and make it a bit like I would do it, you know, sort of, and that's, uh, you know, there's sort of putting a bit of yourself into the character is and that's the way you... that I would do it. And theatre is the greatest prep for that ever because and... uh, you have to pick those beats, you have to wait for the audience reaction, you have to find your timing, and there's no, there's nobody there to guide you. It's, it's kind of, even with all these people around you okay, on a film set, it's the same as a theatre. There's like a 200 people watching you, but you have to pick the moment. Nobody can help you really at the, when you're on your own on the stage. You have to feel it. Yeah. Now, uh, what are you working on right now? Aren't you shooting some now, the United States of Horror or something along those lines? Uh, no, that was... No. Uh, I, I, we are working on the United States of Horror, but that's, uh, that's a collection of short films from mm -hmm. every state in America. Wow. So that's a, a big, big, big project for us, which we are, I, I'm one of, the, one of the producers on it, and I'm overseeing it. I'm not actually in it. I'm just uh, trying to get other people to engage with it and make uh, very exciting content that we're putting together. So uh, I'm very proud of everybody's efforts in it, but it, it's literally going to be 50 short films all mm. wrapped into one very big anthology of horror. Wow. Wow. Uh, you be, you, there's an amazing amount of creativity out there, and horror film producers are, like, right up there with them. So I, I love these guys, and they've always been very nice to me because I've been in some horror movies, so I'm uh, uh, probably a good person to ask them to do them. You know? Wow. I can't wait for that anthology. Yeah, there's some really special films in there from some very talented filmmakers, oh. for sure. Oh, my. Any idea when it will be completed and... Oh, the first one is going to be out in October. So we have three chapters because obviously 50 films is a long thing. So chapter one, I think, is coming out just before Halloween. Oh, perfect. Perfect. So, well, you know, I'm going to have to see right? it. I'm going to have to see it just because you're producing it. I'm going to have to see it. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, you should. All these guys deserve to be seen. They really do. They've made some fantastic work. So are you shooting anything else that you are in right now? Or are you taking I a short am. break? Uh, oh. I'm not sure how much of this I'm supposed to tell you. Uh -oh. but, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll tell you anyway. I'm, I've just, uh, we're just about to launch, I think, Age of the Living Dead Season 2. We did a TV show, which was uh, a vampire TV show mm -hmm. about the end of the world. And we just uh, we wrapped Season 1 is on Amazon Prime right now, but Season 2 is uh, going to drop as well, first week in November, we think. Oh, my God. Like I said at the top, this is the year of Simon. Well, I've got something else on this. I'm, I, that will blow your mind. Uh, Go ahead. I have done not one Bruce Willis movie this year, but two. And I'm in the second, uh, another one called Fortress. <gasps> and that's not out yet. 
that's not out yet. No, so that's I don't know when that's coming out. I'm the last person to know these things. Of course you are. You're you're only a person yeah. that's in the film. They're not going to tell you. Why would you need to know? They're not going to tell me anything. Look, you shot it. You got the check. The check is my dad always told me when I said, "Hey, you know." When I first started in the business 40 years ago and I was doing production, I said, you know, should I be worried if my name isn't on the credits? He goes, did you get a check? Yeah. Did it clear the bank? Yeah. Then don't worry about it. Forget about it. <laughs> every, every, everything else will take care of itself. <laughs> that, was his, that was his mantra. Uh, and he was in television 60 years and it was, no, nope, don't worry. Okay. I won't worry. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I have another film to look out for with you. I'm so excited. Uh, you, I'm only a very small part in that one, but it's, uh, I did enjoy that one too. Oh, you have just made my day, Simon. You have, honest, sincerely, you have made my day. I have so much to look forward to, so much from you, so much to rewatch, um, just because I love it. I'm not even going to tell you how many times I've already watched Stealing Chaplin. I. <laughs> seriously and a filmmaker friend of mine who i who is also a bar a bar manager um she fell in love with the film also and uh i and marie actually i after i leave the show today i'm actually meeting up with her so that she can hear all about me talking with you today because she was so excited that i'm talking with you today oh, too well, you're too kind but uh yes I'm, I'm remember i'm not that good i'm just british you're well you know <laughs> that says a lot. Oh, Simon, this has been so much fun talking to you today. I hope you'll come back on the show again in the future. Of course. Well, stop inviting Paul Tanter on and invite me on, Debbie. I'm much, much more entertainment. Oh, you definitely are, and I'll never invite Paul again. Good. I'll <laughs> tell him that you said that. <laughs> oh, Simon, thank you so, so much. And everybody can see uh, can see uh, survive the game. I think it's October sixth or something. Uh, October eighth, eighth on okay. digital and twelfth on Blu-ray and DVD. Oh well, I'm I'm gonna buy it. So you know that's the only date I care about. I'm gonna buy it. So oh, Simon, thank you so much, and hopefully I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Debbie. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. And that was Simon Phillips talking about the upcoming Survive the Game, going Stealing Chaplin, the upcoming collection of short films, United States of Horror, and more fun stuff. Oh, a dream come true. And now we're switching gears here. We're going to get serious now as we welcome filmmaker Ryan Lason. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Well, I'm fine. How are you doing? Ah, doing good. Glad to be here. Coming, you know, fresh off of your world premiere, All the World is Sleeping, um, at the at the New York uh, Latina Film Festival. How did that go? It was incredible. I mean, just to be back in New York is already, you know, such an electrifying experience. But to be able to screen it, see the film up on the big screen and see the reactions from the audience and the crowd was just so incredible. How is it just to be in a theater again? Well, the New York Latino Film Festival actually did a hybrid. So it was outside. It was half drive-in, 
and half seated. Oh, wow. So therefore, we still got to like experience it outside without actually being in a theater. Very nice. Very nice. Well, for everybody listening, tell us what All the World is Sleeping is about. I know what it's about, but how would you describe it? Uh, so All the World is Sleeping is about a mother who's basically drowning in her addiction but trying to surface for her daughter. It tackles the, you know, the epidemic of substance abuse, but with this film, we try to take it in a different way. We try to show the cerebral, chaotic, grimy, but hopeful look at this epidemic. I mean, you really, you give this almost a, a, a Terrence, a Malick feel with, um, you, you're very stylized in certain areas, but that internalization that you visualize is incredible. You have some beautiful, beautiful, Michael Garcia, your cinematographer, some beautiful imagery that is then cut so well and so emotionally evocatively um, for all of, you know, uh, poor Chama's, you know, her internal meltdown. And you take this a step further with story, which I found interesting is it's not just about our, our heroine Chama and her daughter and her lo- wanting to be with her daughter and get her daughter and clean herself up, maybe, hopefully. Um, you take it back another generation and how the prior generations, this can be, is influenced generationally, this addictive problem, personality. And I found that a really interesting take that you brought to this story. Yeah, well, the whole story kind of came about in a different way, too. Uh, a couple of years ago, I met with this uh, nonprofit in New Mexico called Bold Futures, and they introduced me to these seven women who basically fought and continue to fight against their uh, substance abuse. And for eight weeks, I was able to kind of sit down, listen to their experiences, and just kind of learn and take it in. And from that experience, I was able to go back and kind of craft with their guidance the script, which is All the World is Sleeping. And within that, we wanted to be able to show the, the generational aspect of this cyclical like addiction mm-hmm. and to also kind of capture what you were talking about, which is this kind of like non-linear sense of being able to really get into the mind of someone that's going through an experience like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you do a beautiful job of that. But that I found that so striking that you take us back to when Chama was a little girl and how her grandmother is now gone and now she's stuck with her mother or her mother is stuck with her, um, not very happy about it. And she's passing flasks to her little girl to start drinking, to take yeah. the edge off of the day. And... I'm watching that. It's like, whoa. But you see, you, you show us this perfectly, how this cycle can start and where these roots, uh, uh, these problematic roots can come from. And I found that so interesting because that's not something that we see. That's not something yeah. that we see on screen or even talked about. 
the generational aspect, you hear, uh, it's like, oh, yeah, my, you hear a lot from guys, oh, yeah, you know, oh, my dad was a drunk or something, you know, so I don't have to be good because I can be like him. Um, but this is so much deeper. Um, and it was, it's so compelling watching that and the way you take us back and forth between Chama's internalization in her mind, the flashbacks, and then present day, be it sitting on a bus looking like she hasn't bathed or showered in a month, um, to, you know, being totally strung out with her quote unquote best friend toaster. Um, yeah. Just, you can't not look away. You cannot look away from the screen when you're watching this. You really can't. Uh, and that yeah. really, that speaks to the performances, but also because you have so much of, there is no dialogue. So much of this film, there is no dialogue. It's that internalization of Chama. And it's the images and that are so powerful. A big testament to that aspect, too, is just the cast. When you get, like, an amazing cast like Melissa Breda and, and Jackie Cruz, you're able to just kind of put the camera on them and not worry about any dialogue and just let them completely convey a roller coaster emotions just through their eyes. Oh, Jackie Cruz as Toaster. Jackie Cruz was amazing. Amazing. But I have to say, the, the real heart of this film, the real heart came from Jorge Garcia. Everybody knows him from Lost. But as Nick, who is the counselor at the facility that Chama finally goes into, he is the real heart of this film. And watching his performance and listening to his tone of voice and his demeanor, especially as he bonds with Chama, is amazing. It is probably the most sensitive role I've ever seen him play. Yeah, and Jorge's such an amazing actor. And like you said, most of us know him from Lost. Yeah. And I, I grew up watching Lost religiously. And when our, our casting director, Jessica Sherman, um, mentioned Jorge for this role, at first I was like, you know, you think of uh, Jorge just playing like Curly on Lost. But I was like, this is a really interesting way to kind of show a different side of them. And then when I, I talked to Jorge about it, he was excited to be able to jump into a role that's so different than what audiences mm -hmm. normally see him as. And he just brought so much heart and humanity to the, the part of Nick. Yeah, I, just absolutely amazing. You know, something that I'm curious about, Ryan, is because this, is, this film is all in the female gaze, it's the female perspectives, be it through uh, other women at, be it through Toaster, be it through Chama, be it through other women who are in the recovery center once Chama gets in there. You know, was that challenging for you to find that female POV, that female voice, and keep it consistent throughout this film? Well, I grew up in a household with three sisters oh, and I'm sorry. my mom. So, <laughs> so yeah, from basically from, from growing up my entire life, I was able to have the luxury of being able to like be presented with a female perspective the whole time. But I guess more importantly to this script too is I had seven amazing women who inspired this film that were able to just kind of help me, guide me, 
and take me into the story. So therefore I was able to like properly uh, present their voice. And mm-hmm. once, once I finished the script, I brought it back to each one of the, the women who inspired it. and was like, Hey, read this. Let me know. Does this sound authentic? Does this sound real? Is this your voice? And we wouldn't let the script pass until we were like hundred percent. This is the movie. Mm-hmm. Now you've got it. You've got this down on paper. You have these characters fleshed out. Now you've got to figure out how to shoot it uh, with this visual construct that you have. Where do you even start in developing these visuals that you then are going to take into the editing bay with Eric Sayo, your editor? Yeah, that's <laughs> I guess the beauty of filmmaking is that the entire structure hangs on every single piece of this tower. Mm-hmm. So from the beginning, if we didn't have the perfect cast, if, if Melissa didn't come on board to give 150% to the role of Chama, all the way to Michael, the DP, and, and, and down to the editing room with Eric, if every single person brought their own creative flair and their own, I guess, heart and soul to this movie to basically make it what it is. And without every single person there's no way this movie would even be close to what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, how did you and Michael go about developing the visuals that you have, your visual tonal bandwidth, and selecting? Did you guys storyboard? Did you shot list? Did you, you know, how intense was location scouting? Even though you've got a lot of extreme close-ups, you've got a lot of ECUs, but you use them uh, primarily with Chama's character. And then you give us the absolutely stunning stunning salt flats that is almost the metaphor of a baptismal impurity for these women white on white uh you know magic hour the blue and pink skies absolute stunning hope inspiration how did you develop and decide what you wanted for these images well, going into this film, Michael and I both <laughs> knew that this was an independent film, so we didn't have the luxury of a huge budget to be able to have months and months of preparation. So we had to dedicate every aspect of our shot list to being as accurate and as, I guess, ironclad as possible so that when we got to shoot days, there was little room for error. But in that uh, sense, we didn't want to go for just straight, like, uh, you know how this movie did it? Let's try to do it like this. Or like, oh, I love this one shot in this film. We, we approached everything from, if we were talking about anything visual, we would look at a painting or we would look at a, a piece of art mm-hmm. or, or an aspect of like a photograph in a newspaper and try to use that as inspiration. And then when we went location scouting, we would try to uh, place that painting into this location and try to weave it together into something that we felt was honest to the story, but also something that would be interesting for the audience to uh, absorb that wasn't, you know, your typical representation of a film, but also a film about substance abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is, and I found that really striking, that by we get to the third act, and you have such beautiful visuals. Um, you don't expect to see that kind of beauty in a film that goes as dark and as deep as all the world is sleeping, as we actually go through um, withdrawals, as Chama is going through withdrawals, and the the dutching of the camera, the camera angles are incredible. 
as she's crawling on the floor. She's throwing up in trash cans. Nice touch of having a plastic one, by the way, and not a wicker one. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, the sheets that are soaked with sweat, the trash in the rooms, but the camera just, uh, you know, like a fly on the wall, it's buzzing all around the room that corresponds with her sensation of always having bugs crawling, spiders crawling in her in her veins. Um, all of that is so powerful. Um you know, I can't imagine how long it, but to have that beauty after you see all of that and have beauty come out in the third act, it's really, really stunning. I, I think at the end of the day, too, in everything that we went through, no matter as like grimy and harrowing that would get, uh, beauty and hope were always the two words that we try to cling to. Just trying to have that like hope in the human spirit that. No matter how low to the ground, how, how, I guess, deep you get, there's always this opportunity to be able to pull yourself out of it. And there's always kind of beauty in the world if you just fight to see it. Mm-hmm. Now, some, another, a, a truly beautiful part of this, of this film is your score. Emily Green composed your score. Talk to me about what you were looking for musically that would buttress the story serve as an undercurrent, but net, and the score is so important in a lot of this internalization where there is no dialogue. So uh, those musical beats are, are crucial. So I'm curious what you were looking for musically from Emily. Uh, Emily was so incredible. Meeting her was definitely a godsend to this film. Uh, so when we, we got together, we both, she, she read the script and we chatted about, you know, like our musical influences and what we like and don't like in scores. But she wants to approach this in a way that was like very atypical to a drama like this. Especially too, since the film is like nonlinear, it's jumping, you know, all around. Mm-hmm. She wants to make it feel like it's this other character in the movie. So therefore, it's like Chamba is fighting this internal fight. And the score is also kind of fighting with itself at times, too. It's like two fists kind of like going at each other. And sometimes it's combative. Sometimes the scores kind of hold each other and it feels a little bit more warm and welcoming. But at each moment, you know, the score can, can just completely fall apart within the world of all the world of sleeping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's Now, did your score, when you were ed- editing with Eric, I'm assuming you were there with him. Um, because this had to be a very intense edit. I'm curious if you were editing to any temp scoring or if Emily already had score done for you. How was that part of the post process? I was with Eric the, uh, the entire time. And it's definitely, it's one of those films too that you can cut this movie a thousand different oh, yes. ways. <laughs> but luckily Eric has like such a keen eye for story and at in the end of the day every single like cut they would make is like is this you know a process of the story is this pushing our movie along is this Chalmers journey if not then it's cut out of it and we we did use attempt score which could always be a gift and a curse yeah it's a gift in the sense of like okay you listen to it, you're like yes this seems working but then <laughs> you know you get so married to it 
So when Emily came in, she was just able to just throw away that temp score and just be like, hey, I'm going to give you something that's going to be nothing like your temp score, but I promise it's going to be even better. Well, and then you also have to, you, I'm sure a concern then becomes for you, as so many directors have, it's, oh my God, my visuals are cut to the beats of the temp score. Is is the final score going to match that, or am I going to have to recut? Um, did you run oh, into yeah. any situation like that with this one? Luckily, Emily's so good that anything that we did cut to the temp score, she would be able to match and beat to whatever score oh, she wow. created. So, yeah. So definitely saved us in the edit. So now you shot this in New Mexico, correct? Yeah. Las Cruces, New Mexico, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. Wow. So, for your first feature film, what was this experience like shooting in New Mexico, um, choosing your locations there, and making these locations part of the film? It, they're not just random houses or a random street. Um, Salt Flats, obviously, not very random. You know, what? how important was that in the location, in developing the look and tone of this film? Well, kind of like going back to the score about when the score was going to be another character in the film, the New Mexico had to be its own character as well. And we want to present it in a way that New Mexico hasn't really been seen in other mm-hmm. movies before. A lot of times when people think about New Mexico, they're like, oh, yeah, it's Breaking Bad. And everything you know about the, the state or Albuquerque or, or Las Cruces is from that type of environment. So we want to create a different look of New Mexico. And I, I grew up in Albuquerque. So I want to show a perspective that I felt like this is representation of everything that I saw growing up. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now you also have minors working in this film. You have children, young people in the film. Did that present any kind of learning curve for you as a director? Because you've got to maintain certain work hours and things along those lines when you have kids involved. Yeah, for an independent script, I definitely <laughs> threw the gauntlet at myself. We got kids, we got a car crash, we got a scene with fire, flashbacks, you know. Uh, but with the minors, it was the, the challenge is definitely you have less time on set. Right. And then when you're dealing with the subject matter like this, it's, you know, being able to knock out a scene in a couple hours, but also knocking out a scene where the, the, ch- the child actors would have to, you know, cry or emotionally go to places that they're not used to going to. Mm-hmm. But luckily, we had a stellar cast, and they, they came willing to play. And also, too, like, the, the Adeline who plays uh, Chama's daughter in it, she was able to just kind of really bond with uh, our lead actress, Melissa, and they formed such a bond and such, I guess, they trust in each other. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, she... they she was able to lean on Melissa a lot in some of those really dark, uncomfortable scenes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a dark, uncomfortable scene for you as a director had to be the kid's birthday party. Oh, yeah. That I, I watched that, Ryan, and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. oh, my God, his first feature film, and he puts this in. What'd you do? You had 30 kids in there, 35 kids in there, just trashing the place? Shoving oh, food yeah. down their... <laughs> Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely trying to make it as challenging as possible. You know, how do you even, how did you even uh, navigate that scene 
Dark scenes are one thing, but when you've got kids contained in a house, like 35 of them, 30, 35 of them, and it's a party scene, and they're jumping, and they're playing, and you've got balloons, and you've got streamers, and you've got crepe paper, and you've got cake, and you've got cookies, and you've got crap all over the floor, and stuff getting spilled. How do you even approach that? Yeah, the challenging aspect of that, too, is I had to create it as chaotic and insane as possible in order for the audience to feel what it feels like inside Chama's mind. But in order to do that, yeah, you have 35 kids just basically going insane on this set. Uh, luckily, the kids were having the time of their life, and we had an amazing first AD named Nikki Barra who was able to, like, every time uh. I call cut, quiet the house, get everybody under control, which is, you know, obviously a feat on its own. But I think at the end of the day, we were able to kind of convey the madness of a child's birthday party on screen. Oh, you definitely conveyed that. You know, did you give them all sugar before you shot so they'd be amped up for you? I mean, the kids look like they're on cookies and Red Bull, but I think it's just <laughs> them being eight and ten years old. They were just loving life. That scene, I watched that scene, and boy, oh boy, that chaos comes screaming through you nailed that you nailed that one so perfectly oh my (laughs) god ryan so now because this is your first feature film what was the learning curve like for you what did you find the easiest or the most challenging in bringing this film to life especially once you had the script in play was it your casting? Was it the actual shooting, working with Michael to come up with your visuals? What were you say were, you know, were the biggest challenges and the, and the biggest blessings that you had with this? The blessings would definitely be the cast and the crew. We were lucky enough to have like an amazing cast that came 100% prepared and 150% willing to go the distance. Because... Mm-hmm. I mean, this is an independent schedule, so we don't have a ton of days to shoot yeah. this. So Melissa, who plays Chama, would have to spend the first half of her day going through this body-crushing detox scene and then spend the second half of the day maybe going on the bus and doing, like, four more scenes. Mm-hmm. And she had to basically, you know, emotionally go to all these places within the 12-hour day. And then crew-wise, we got the best of the best in every single uh, department. So as for production design, our production designer, Kala, would just kind of come in and be able to create this whole world that 100% exceeded my vision. Mm-hmm. So just knowing I had the trust in like her and Michael to be able to, you know, masterfully move the camera, it just made my job so much, I guess, easier or as accomplishable. <laughs> uh, the cons are definitely the shooting schedule. Trying to knock out a feature film that has everything that this film has in 16 days was a feat. Wow. But how, how many it, locations? It a, how many locations? Because lo- it looks like you lot. had, yeah, you had a number of locations there. So you've got to build into that 16 days. Your travel time, you know, your travel and setup and breakdown going to and from each location. Yeah, almost every other day is like a company move, and that takes up a couple hours right there, just moving from one set to the other. Wow. Well, you definitely, definitely 
the work you put in shows. It's an amazing film, Ryan. Um, as I said, it's one we have. It's a perspective we haven't seen before. And your, I love your your approach and that Malik kind of feel with the internalization and the emotionality that you turn into visuals so that we can relate to it. Um, you've done an, a, a wonderful job with this film. And I honestly can't wait to see what you do next. Yeah, thank you. We're, we're definitely excited to get this film out there and get it seen. So what's the plan for the film right now? You have the world premiere at the New York Latino Film Fest. Where do we, where, where can we find it next? Because I'm, I know it's still on the festival circuit. Yeah, so we're we're going on our little festival tour this year. So up next is the Santa Fe Film Festival, October fifteenth, followed by Seattle, Ojai, and then we're doing Las Cruces, and then I think a handful of other film festivals too. So we'll we'll ride that circuit this year, and then be out for distribution two thousand twenty two. Wow. Now, where can everybody keep track of All the World is Sleeping? Is there a website for the film that will have all of the upcoming festival information? There is. You can go to allworldsleeping.com or else, you know, follow Melissa Brea on uh, Instagram, our lead actress, and follow me, too, and we'll, we'll keep you all updated. Uh, well, Ryan, I, I really can't wait to see what you do next. Uh, <coughs> you definitely have a gifted eye for storytelling and filmmaking. And uh, I, I hope you will come back on the show again with your next one. Absolutely. I'll be there. Or at least when you get distribution. Yeah, completely. I'd love to keep you updated along the way. That is fabulous. Well, Ryan, I can't thank you enough. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you, Debbie. <coughs> Pardon me while I'm choking. And we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Ryan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And as I am here choking, and I can't get my bottle of water open, luckily we are at the end of the show, and that is all the time we have. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias, and if I don't choke to death, I'll be here then. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 